Hey everybody, welcome to episode 23 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon. This is a jam-packed episode with one of my all-time favorite returning guests. He is a music journalist. He is a musician. If you are familiar with Metallicast, you know him as our resident St. Anger expert, Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Mr. Richard S. He! Hey! Glad to be back on one of my all-time favorite podcasts. So, hello. Well, hello, sir. It is a pleasure to have you back, especially, uh, you know, we. I'm jumping on the bandwagon because my buddy Richard over here recently went a little viral. <laughs> oh good lord yeah <laughs> I, I it's not it's far from being metallica or metal related but just a just a little insight into uh what happened to you recently very very compressed short version is i wrote an article for vice in 2016 about the taylor swift kim kardashian kanye west feud that was overall pretty positive pretty fair vice slapped a headline on it called Taylor Swift isn't like other celebrities she's worse which I had no input in uh, I always knew that headline would come back to bite me in the ass and uh, last week it did because Taylor Swift released a documentary on Netflix called Miss Americana where um, at one point it shows a lot of examples of her being kind of mistreated and you know unfairly judged by the media and the first headline you see in that segment is that headline so uh, <laughs> Oops. I was not forewarned. I watched the documentary the day after it came out, and I didn't know, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, after that, like, I wrote a little thread explaining my role in it and kind of apologizing for, not for the article, but having been a part of that dynamic. Because, yeah, I want to contribute to that, I think. Yeah, that I think is a valid sentiment. But I think it had a happy ending. You are now a viral sensation. Took Twitter by storm for a moment. And uh, and we all know that Taylor Swift loves you. So. Aww. Aww. <laughs> now, my question for you is this. To bridge both of these worlds. Yes. Does Taylor Swift love Metallica? I... I would not be surprised if she loves Nothing Else Matters, at the very least. <laughs> also, Mama Said is fair. So. Right, I was going to say, Mama Said could be a, a song that she could dig. If she knows yeah. the song is out there, you know? Yeah. Maybe we'll be getting a future Grammy Awards performance of Metallica with Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah, in my dreams. And nightmares. <laughs> now, um... Might not have gone viral, but uh, recently had an interesting and fun thread on the Twitter machine at Metallicast Pod, for those of you not in the know, um, where somebody said, I'm not going to name names, but somebody said that Beyond Magnetic, you heard that correctly, not Death Magnetic, but 
the EP that came out with the four leftover tracks, Beyond Magnetic, which I have nothing against. I'm not here to knock that EP. I'm not here to knock those songs. This is the point, though, ladies and gentlemen. Somebody said that Beyond Magnetic was the greatest album Metallica has ever released. Period. <laughs> Somebody legitimately put that out there. And I hope that they're listening. And I'm sorry I do not remember your Twitter handle off the top of my head. But, uh, I, which opened up this whole new world of... Uh, I realized that, you know, people are different. People have gotten into the band at different stages. Um, what I I would not rank Load and Reload as my two favorite Metallica albums, but I think I'm a lot more into those albums because they came out during my childhood as opposed mm-hmm. to somebody who was into the band in the 80s when Master Puppets was their childhood. But, so I get being attracted to Death Magnetic and Hardwire Self-Destruct and if that is happening when you're at your peak adolescence but beyond magnetic the greatest thing they've ever released i i feel like i've been out sam angered on this one it's beyond magnetic. <laughs> and it's like I, I i'm at a loss for words um <laughs> defeated so much respect to the original poster of that yeah, and then it opened up the fun conversation about songs that may not be obvious in Metallic Catalog uh, that were among people's favorites. Some of them, you know, I gotta say, I ha- I have no argument with. Like, The Outlaw Torn, it, I think, is a, a fan favorite. It's a deep cut uh, off the Load album, obviously. But then some of them, uh, Lords of Summer is the best Metallica song ever released. Ever released? Better than Master of Puppets? Better than anything else they've ever released? Yow. To each their own. Listen, I'm not here to shit on people, especially those of you who are subscribers. That's not my intention. I just am here to have a laugh because those are all responses I was not expecting. And I wanted to mention it on this episode with you, Richard, because I know you were part of that thread, and I think you were left scratching your head as much as I was. I was very impressed. I'll just say that. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody mentioned Slither! Slither! Makes me think of Velvet Revolver. These were songs that I would not rank the best on the album that they appear on, and people think they're the best out of all their songs. I think I think this could be like a an episode or at least a mini episode down the road, and we'll have like a little roundtable debate. But it, if you have if you're not part of this thread and you have an unusual Metallic album or song that is your favorite, like let's say you know in the case of Richard S. He Saint Anger is your favorite Metallica album. <laughs> uh, let's say that Invisible Kid you think that is legitimately the greatest song Metallica has ever released. Let me know. Let us know on the Twitter machine at MetallicaSpod because uh, I'm fascinated to know. And just FYI, for those of you who are listening to this episode and saw the subject, I know what we've talked about so far has nothing to do with that. But it, guess what, Richard? 
Guess what? what? I am a podcast professional. Indeed. And this is how good I am. You ready? I am ready. This is how I'm going to transition. Are you ready for this? I'm so ready. Ozzy motherfucking Osborne. Boom! I that that's not even a transition, but I made it one. I made it one with just one goddamn name. It's all you need. It's all you need. He's the man. Because I think whether you like Taylor Swift or hate Taylor Swift, whether you think Master of Puppets is the greatest song ever made, or you think Better Than You is the greatest song ever made, I think we can all agree that Ozzy Osbourne is a pioneer in music, not just heavy metal, in music, and a huge, gigantic influence on the career of Metallica, along, of course, with his original band of Black Sabbath. So this episode is going to be kind of a chronological look at all the cool and interesting and important times throughout history that these two behemoths and giants of music and heavy metal. That was my Bruce Dickinson. What do you think? Pretty good. Uh, <laughs> cross paths. So in this episode, we're talking about Metallica crossing paths and all the crazy kooky ways, as Lars Ulrich would say, that they have with Sabbath and Ozzy. They are the godfathers, and we are all their children. I think. Now, I'm glad you said that, because whether you are a fan of Black Sabbath or not, and if, if you're listening to Metallicast, and you're not a fan of Black Sabbath, first of all, there's something seriously wrong with you. But... Yeah, like you Go do something you, about it. You if it must be that the only song you know is Paranoid, or you're just really tired of listening to Iron Man. Just go and maybe they've only heard maybe they've only heard Megadeth's <laughs> version of Paranoid. I I have to make up for the lack of Dave Mustaine impressions in the last episode, <laughs> so <laughs> might as exactly. well start now. Uh, but without a doubt. Work your way through this, through their discography. I recommend you check out Sabbath Bloody Podcast if you're looking for a an excellent podcast companion. While you do so, uh, Rye will break down their career and their albums. Uh, this episode, we're going to take a lot more general look at Sabbath and Ozzy, and of course, a more in depth look in uh, where they cross paths with Metallica, as I said. But let's start at the beginning, since you call them the godfathers of heavy metal. I mean, this genre of music that we love would not exist without these four men forming Black Sabbath. These four men, of course, being, uh, we've mentioned Ozzy, but of course also uh, Tiny. (laughs) I am tired. (laughs) Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler, and Mr. Bill Ward. Each of them a legend in their own right. Absolutely, I must say. Um, in each played a gigantic part in that band. Uh, it, for my two cents, I think Bill Ward and Geezer Butler 
are, if not the best rhythm section in the history of metal, uh, they're definitely in my top two or three best rhythm sections in the history of metal. And Geezer Butler, unless if you are uh, really in the know or really diehard South fan, you might not know this, but Ozzy Osbourne did not write a lot of those lyrics. Geezer Butler was the lyricist of all those classic Sabbath tracks. So a in a lot of ways, a very underrated member of the band because I'm not sure people know the full scope of his songwriting contributions. Yeah, it's really... I guess he gave heavy metal its perspective, if you think about it. Like, you know, the song Black Sabbath, he's singing about Satan, but it's not, like, pro-Satan. It's like, whoa, Satan. <laughs> Looking into darkness and maybe reclaiming maybe right corrupted by it and I, and I think that's the important thing about Black Sabbath and how they originated heavy metal it was the sound of the instruments but it was also the content and the look and the image and the subject matter it was darker and more evil and you know their goal was to basically create a scary movie out of music which, if you listen to the song titled Black Sabbath, that's exactly what they pulled off. And they pulled that off countless times throughout their career. But what's funny about Black Sabbath is that there's a lot more to their music than that. Uh, musically, lyrically. And when you actually break down a lot of their lyrics, they're actually very positive and kind of not any better than a lot of the typical peace and love of uh, the late 60s, early 70s is just presented in a slightly quirky way. Yeah, I think I think they were more believable because they were acknowledging the darkness of the world around them. And, you know, industrial and post-World War II. It's been talked about so much, but, you know, the end of the 60s, the death of the hippie dream, and the rise of, well, the kind of yeah. weirdness of the same. I, I absolutely yeah. agree. And what's funny, I'm thinking this... I'm forming this thought out loud because as you said that, I started thinking, you know, they were not just the Avengers of, of heavy metal, but what they started as was a very, like, street mentality. Like you said, industrial Birmingham, working class to lower, you know, economic families that they came from. And Metallica started off in a very similar way, just kind of working class guys, very you know, street mentality, very punk rock attitude. I mean, Black Sabbath predates punk rock, but they were kind of punk rock in their own way. And, and you know, and Metallica kind of carried on that tradition. And it's ironic, in a sense, because are there two bigger and more influential bands in the history of heavy metal than Black Sabbath and Metallica? I would say no. I would say like they're the two bands yeah. that everyone loves. And I, I think you music. could make an argument for certain other bands in terms, especially in terms of uh, popularity, but it, not an influence. You know, Black Sabbath are the inventors, and I think Metallica just brought it to the next level, and nobody has come up to that level yet. Or stay there, at least. But it's interesting how that occurred. And it's interesting because of all the ways they cross paths throughout the years. But 
Black Sabbath, obviously, a huge influence on Metallica themselves. And one could argue that Metallica, at least in the way we know and love them, would not exist without Sabbath doing what they did back in Birmingham, England in the 1960s. Absolutely. Even though for my money, in a lot of ways, they're very different bands. But, um, I mean, Sabbath set the template and it's like every other band that followed followed them just kind of deviated or imitated. I mean, how many doom metal bands are out there today where you're like, this is basically a Black Sabbath record? You know? Or that's a Black Sabbath riff. And Doom is just one of the many subgenres that Black Sabbath directly inspired. You know? That's yeah. Doom is just like... And in a funny way, I feel like you hear the influence of Black Sabbath and Metallica on some of the albums. I think you hear the influence more on some of the albums where people... That people don't think... That people do not think are as heavy. Like, the swing of Sabbath, you hear... And all the grooves on load and reload, and they really come out in uh, a lot of spots in Hardwire Self Destruct. Um, there's multiple moments in that record where I'm like, I feel like I'm listening to a Sabbath riff. Absolutely, yeah, because there's spots where the riff is driving the song probably more than yeah. the vocal melody itself. And that's a very clever thing, you know? It's like Ozzy singing along to Iron Man's lead riff, right. and not the other way around. And you found an interesting article on Rolling Stone. So this is uh, Lars Ulrich on his 15 favorite metal and hard rock albums. I will not do an imitation because it will end up sounding like Tommy <laughs> Which Rose, I so. also want to hear, by the way. So <laughs> Maybe later. Um, so, yeah, Lars named Sabotage uh, Sabbath's sixth album from 19, 1975 as one of his favorites says, I know for a lot of Black Sabbath people, it's paranoid or master of reality. To me, the fucking one-two punch of hole in the sky and then symptom of the universe, that's where it peaks for me. And then the deeper tracks. Megalomania is like a journey of just fundamental heavy metal. Side A, if you look at vinyl, is probably the strongest 20 minutes of Black Sabbath. And then symptom of the universe, the simplicity in the riff, the downpicking, the chug. It's obviously the blueprint for the core of what hard rock and metal ended up sounding like up through the 80s and 90s. And then he says, the first Sabbath record I got was the one before this one, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. I got it for Christmas in 73 when it came out. It was all scary. Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, the song, when it goes into that second part. Where can you run to? What more have we done? Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, nothing more to do. Fuck. Scary, crazy shit. (laughs) This record had a of what I would call an up-tempo energy than some of the other albums. So that's probably also part of the reason that it's my favorite. Obviously, their sound got a little bit more advanced as it went on. There's a simplicity to some of the earlier records that I'm appreciative of, but sonically, Sabotage is the best-sounding record. So that's an interesting pick from our man Lars, because I feel like that's the last classic Aussie record of the six, but not many people came in as favorite. I've heard people even say, like, the the first five Sabbath records are really, like, the crowning jewel. I feel like Sabotage is kind of uh, a little bit of a bastard love child for some people. Because the, there are really standout tracks, like, yeah. Symptom of the Universe, Hole in the Sky, like, but beyond that, it's a lot more deeper cuts, and 
ones that uh, a lot of tracks that just get completely lost in the shuffle when you look at the overall uh, years that Ozzy was in the band. Yeah, though I do love yeah, that album. Very much so. What What is your favorite Sabbath album? That is a putting one spot. Great question, and I've actually been listening to a lot of Black Sabbath the last few days as. Uh, I was researching for this episode. I just got in a Sabbath mood. And it, I, it's similar to Metallica in a way where my favorite kind of changes depending on my mood. But I would say if I had to choose yeah. one, I think I have to go with Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. Um, I think that record just has a little bit of everything that Black Sabbath does well. It has the the chunky riffs it has the grooves and the swing but it's all presented in a, a more flourished more uh slightly more produced um more sophisticated way than what they hinted at with volume four that came before it uh but i feel like they fully like reach i feel like it, that part of their uh songwriting kind of reached its peak on that fifth record and and after that, it just sort of was with mixed results. But I feel like on South Bloody Sabbath, they did everything they did in their whole career really well in a very consistent manner. Totally. And I love that record. Um, especially I was thinking Spiral Architect, like such a weird yeah. and cool song. And such a classically geezer. Yeah, lyric. and there's some tracks on there that you're going to listen to be like, this is sound, like for somebody who does not know Black Sabbath, you're going to hear some songs and be like, oh yeah, this is what I imagine Black Sabbath sounds like. And then other songs are kind of uh, off from like left field that you would be like, oh, this is a little bit different. But not in a way where it's like what they would do on later records where they're doing like a, you know, a jazz number or uh, a, a super ballady song or a more like radio hard rock song, which I feel like they flirted with a lot of different stuff on their last couple Aussie records when they were just in a uh, a drug-fueled haze trying to uh, <laughs> trying to work their way through their dysfunction and I'm, I'm not I'm not shitting on those records either because I think both those albums have bright spots too um, I think Technical Ex Ecstasy actually is a very underrated Sabbath record if you listen to it from start to finish I think there's a lot of standout tracks on there but I just feel like South Bloody Sabbath just did it all really, really well. I think I would say it took me a long time to settle on my favorite, but I would actually go with Master of Reality. Um, to me, that is like the primal sludge. Um, uh, it's like maybe a bit less poppy than Par Bits of Paranoid, um, like as heavy as the first record, but um, it's you know not full of like kind of weird blues. Yeah digressions which i do a lot but um yeah i don't know for, for me that one holds the most like mystery to me especially into the void like that might be i do song. feel like master of reality might be their most metal record because like the first album uh, for all of its darkness it's like you said goes into a lot of bluesy jams like they're they're still kind of holding on to um their blues roots in a lot of ways not in a bad way I, but it's totally. just what it was and then with Paranoid I it kind of alternates between 
you know, more radio friendly rock of a song like Paranoid and more like just kind of like psychedelic jams that you, one would expect at like the yeah. end of the 60s when the songs would have been written. And then, but Master Reality to me is when they've just came like just full, chunky, meaty, thick, thick, heavy, heavy riffs. Yeah, and very detuned as well. Yeah, and when you, like when I think of doom metal bands that rip off Sabbath or that pay homage to Sabbath, I, I think of like, I think of that album, Master Reality, of, so I, I feel like they wrote every doom metal riff on that record, and every band since has just been like borrowing and taking from those tracks. <laughs> um, I will make a quick digression and say I even like some of the the, the later later albums, like you know Dio's three albums I really like, but I like some of the Tony Hawk and stuff. Um, like yeah. Tire to me is a really underrated record, like proto Viking metal that no one talks about i i love um i love dio era black sabbath heaven and hell i guess we're supposed to call it now you know to separate it from the original run i love that i i love the run he had with those guys um but they they lost me after that and not because to be honest with you i just never gave anything after dio a fair listen there's like, there's interesting spots in probably every record after, and some of the le- the really late ones are like interestingly bad, like Forbidden, you know, the 1994 one with Tony Munn that has like Ice T rapping. Yeah, that's sort of an infamous record. Uh, very badly produced, but that's like to think that there were four years between that record and like the 1998 reunion with the original lineup that was like incredible. Um, right. Like Ozfest as well, by extension. So, quite a strange career they've had. <laughs> strange and Yeah, wonderful. seriously. You know, it, I remember when they came out with, uh, you know, their reunion tour. And they had their big record, uh, their big double album live record. They had like two new studio tracks, and that was. And then you're like, oh, well, that was it. <laughs> But then they just kept on coming back and back. We even got another uh, full-length studio record from them, and now I think it actually might be the end, like they say it is. But yeah, I don't doubt it. You know what's funny about that reunion? I, I guess we're skipping ahead, but um, uh, it's like you know, Black Sabbath in the early '90s were viewed as kind of relics, you know, of the '70s and '80s hard rock. They were they were kind of dinosaurs. They had a reinvented. Whereas by the late 90s, that wave of like alternative and new metal had risen back up. And so they were able to kind of claim Sabbath as godfathers. Yeah. Like you could see how their influence had jumped to that next generation. And so it was like, oh, Sabbath. suddenly Sabbath is cool again. They're hip. And I, and I think, too, that um, the relevance of Ozzy Osbourne goes a long way in how Black Sabbath is remembered and perceived. Because I, if Ozzy did not have that second act as a solo artist, I often wonder how well-known and how uh, recognized Black Sabbath would be today. 
Correct. Because he was always the public face. Even, you know, when he wasn't fronting the band in a weird way, he, like, was the face. Right. He was the master of the four. Right. And, 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 we, you would, and there's no way they would have had that reunion tour, at least not at that level, uh, without the star power of Ozzy Osbourne during that time, without the power of Ozfest, because that was a touring juggernaut for that period of time. And like you said, with like the rise of new metal and heavier bands, it was just sort of like the perfect storm of events that kind of said, oh, you know what? There's a lot of money to be made here. Absolutely. Did we mention that um, that Ozzy's upcoming solo album is the reason we're talking about Cyber <laughs> No, but it was in my notes, so I got that going for me. Yeah, it's not just because we love Sabbath. <laughs> there is a <laughs> well. I mean, it, it's a fun. It, it's a fun time to be a fan of Ozzy because yeah. uh, I I have not been. It's not been fun to be a fan of new Ozzy music since maybe the early two thousands. Yeah, maybe since the nineties. His last two records have done nothing for me. It's just more of the same, kind of generic, nothing exciting. Uh, I would, I, I'll be honest with you. I remember one or, I think I remember the singles off both records. I do not remember anything else that came off of it. I'm not even sure I made it through one listen of the records. It, w- it wasn't necessarily bad. It just, it just was what you've heard a million and one times. But not as good. Yeah, no real reason to exist, I guess. You know, except for the same and, thing. And when you're not producing quality new music and you're... In, 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 I'm not... I do not want to knock the guy, but between, you know, the Osborne reality show and then kind of becoming like a... Like almost a sad parody of himself in some ways and like a, and a joke in, to some people... It was just hard to really invest in, like, current Ozzy Osbourne for a period of time. Yeah, in his music. Well, and his public image to an extent. And and then, you know, things go in waves, and metal kind of started taking a backseat again, and the Ozfest tour start, uh, you know, eventually ended, and it just, he was not in the public eye in the same way. And then you just, and when he was, it was just, you know, he has health issues. Oh, he's having an affair. Just like nothing positive was coming out the to really make you be like, fuck yeah, Ozzy's back. <laughs> but and, uh, if you told me that Post Malone and his producer uh, would be the answer to... Uh, another Aussie career resurrection, I would have laughed in your face, but it is 2020 and here we are. (laughs) Yeah, years after the first Sabbath album. Um, So strange, yeah. Because Post Malone uh, got Aussie to do uh, like a featured chorus on his song Take What You Want From Me last year. And Aussie and All Involved had so much fun with that. They decided to spin it off into doing more tracks and so now i think the the band on ozzy's upcoming solo album um ordinary man which is out for 21 it's like chad smith of red hot chili peppers is the drummer duff mckagan yeah. of roses is the bassist 
and like Charlie Poof is like playing keyboards. So, so strange, but you know, just to see how far his influence has reached is fascinating. Yeah. And I have to say, uh, we're recording this before the release of the record, but this is the first Aussie album in a long time. I'm super excited for the three tracks that have been released that I've listened to. I've really enjoyed each one. Um, and, and like you mentioned the backing band, but also some cool cameos slash playing guitar, uh, on the title track, ordinary man, we have Elton John on piano and doing guest vocals. Uh, it, in Ozzy and his music, all of a sudden feels very fresh and relevant again. And it's really, really awesome to see. Absolutely. Loving it. <laughs> so we are just riding that momentum. And we're going to just break down, like I said, 34 minutes ago. <laughs> we're finally getting to it. <laughs> All the ways that Metallica, Black Sabbath, or Ozzy Osbourne, their paths have intersected and intertwined. And it, the first time, back in 1986, little-known album called Master of Puppets was released upon the world and Metallica's popularity continued to grow and grow and grow. But there was one thing that they had not done on their road to superstardom and world domination. That was play arenas mm -hmm. and the ultimate sin tour in 1986 where they supported Ozzy Osbourne was the first time um, at least in the United States, where they got a chance to play uh, arenas. Yeah, um, and 86 is Ozzy, like, pretty close to his commercial and, like, cultural peak. Um, at this point, Ozzy is, you know, still, like, very much an alcoholic. Um, he's kind of the boogeyman in a lot of... Um, yeah. Sides. This is the peak of the Parents Music Resource Center. Yeah. Um, wanting to send albums and all that. Um, and yeah, it's this such is like I bit a hit, I bit the hit off a of bat era Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> him capitalizing on that too. Yeah. Um, interesting. Such an interesting choice to bring out Metallica as his supporting act on tour because you know he could easily have picked any hard rock band, but um, apparently it was booked thanks to Q Prime, Metallica's management at the time. Like Ozzy apparently didn't hadn't heard of Metallica. Yeah. And the management told him. And it's funny because Ozzy during the Ultimate Sin era has like that poofed up kind of hair metal 80s hair going. And, you know, the it his stage show is a little bit more flash and bombast, you know, because it was peak 80s time. Mm -hmm. And... His support act is Metallica coming out with their ripped jeans and just in bell bottoms in the case of Cliff Burden and just thrashing the living shit out of everybody and everything that got in their way. Yeah, and um, playing pretty long opening sets too. Like there's two 1986 supporting sets recorded for, um, they put them on the Master of Puppets box set and they're both like about 55 minutes. So... Yeah. It wasn't just like a, a simple support thing. Like, they got to play a full set. Yeah. They, they, I mean, 
last episode we looked at uh, Dave and I looked at Day on the Green 1985, and that was they basically play like a full festival set of like 50 minutes. Mm. Um, got probably a good, I'll say, average on average like eight songs in plus maybe like a bass solo, um, and you recently posted. Uh, it was just this morning, I think, which, uh, or for me, it was this morning. For you, it was last night. <laughs> but a, a video, which you can find on YouTube or Cliff Em All, it, it appeared on that uh, video release as well from Metallica. But uh, of them playing the Songmaster puppets uh, from this time period. And in any time you see Metallica from Master Puppets or Ride the Lightning or Kill Em All era, the word that you describe them as on Twitter and that just comes to my mind is hungry. Absolutely. Just on fire and just wanting so much and having so much to prove. Um, I just put that video on casually and it's kind of, I think it's a fan cam, you know, it's not super high quality and not remastered or anything, but I just put it on no. and I'm like, oh, you know, this will be cool. I got to do my research and then boom, just like smack in the face. Yeah. <laughs> And, and and it's funny. It was funny for me having just freshly rewatched all the Day on the Green stuff from '85, and then watching that clip of Master Puppets from '86. The growth of their playing, of their stage performance, of the physical like stage setup with the crosses and it, like everything had just grown so much in such a short amount of time. And I posed this question on Twitter. I'm not sure there's I cannot think of too many bands that grew as much as they did on so many levels in such a short amount of time. There are definitely other bands out there, but there's not too many you can... I, I can think of that grew, that had that same growth musically or performance-wise. I mean, you look at... If you're looking at bands, like, you have the Beatles, who had a very short window of time and had crazy musical growth. Uh, who else would you throw in that conversation? Um, well, Sabbath. Not to put you on the spot. Sabbath. I would say, like, probably U2 from the first three albums. Uh, like, Radiohead from 95, 98. That's a good yeah. one, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it, again, it's, a, it's a special uh, breed of band, though. Yeah, and Kill 'Em All to Puppets, again, is three years. Crazy. Crazy yeah, to think that. that. <laughs> I mean, the fact that when, by the time Kill em All came out, they were already writing songs for Ride the Lightning or had already written songs that were on Ride the Lightning is pretty insane, considering, I mean, there's very few albums, there's very few debut albums to second albums with that amount of musical growth. And then Master of Puppets was just in my opinion, the perfection of what they started on Ride the Lightning. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was, go ahead. I might read a little bit from um, the Enter Night biography, which I have here by Mick Wall, just about this section of their careers, if that's cool. So, um, yes. Uh, it says, Hugh Prime were able to buy Metallica onto Ozzy Osbourne's Mammoth Summer Tour. That was a real break for us, Lars admitted. At the time, Ozzy was perceived as one of the most controversial metal stars in the US. 
he drew a really extreme type of crowd, which suited us down to the ground. Because here we are as this even more extreme up-and-coming metal band that Ozzy was giving his seal of approval to by taking out on tour with him. Ozzy later told me he'd never even heard of Metallica when his wife and manager Sharon first informed him who his new, to- who his new tour mates would be. I used to walk by their trailer backstage and think they were taking the piss, he said, because all you could hear was Black Sabbath blasting out of the windows, that and all the dope smoke. Far from trying to get a rise out of the star of the show, the band, especially Lars and Cliff, both long-term Aussie era Sabbath fans, simply could not believe their luck. We were definitely in awe of him, said Lars. Aussie was a fucking legend, but by the end of it, we'd had some good times with him. And so they had. Despite a recent, much-publicized spell drying out at the Betty Ford Clinic, these were still very much Ozzy's wild years, and the Metallica trailer became a more frequent stopover for him as the tour progressed. And he realized it was often a good place to get a drink and a smoke, and anything he fancied, away from the disapproving case of Sharon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And actually, Ozzy... It's funny, because that story about uh, thinking... Metallica were taking the piss. Like, Ozzy recently told it on the Broken Record podcast with Rick Rubin. But it's also, um, Metallica also mentioned it in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions, so. Mm. It's memorable. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny how, you know, that was sort of, they felt as fans of him, too, that they, they had his blessing now. <laughs> they, he took him under their wing, they won him over, they had their blessing. The to metal fans, Ozzy had given them their his recognition and blessing. That's that that just shows the importance of Ozzy on metal, and also how much it really did for Metallica in their careers. Because you're looking at their next their their next album, they're headlining arenas for the first time. Yeah, and then that's and then they go on to the Black Album. I mean rest is history they're the biggest band in the world yeah and it's like you're right it's like it's like Ozzy giving them their blessing but not necessarily passing the torch because Ozzy remained a huge star and you know has still been active through a lot of the time absolutely yeah just like a generation more than anything wasn't not a competition no not at all and as important as that tour was it, for, according to the research I did, it would not be till 1992 when Metallica is the current biggest band in the world, fresh off the success of the Black Album, where they cross paths, uh, cross paths at all again with any member of Black Sabbath. And just this is just sort of a um, random occurrence. Uh, the 1992 Freddie Mercury tribute concert, a fantastic show. If you've not had the privilege to see it, a lot of great, memorable performances. Um, a who's who of rock music. Everybody from uh, the surviving members of Queen, of course, to Alton John, to Guns N' Roses, to David Bowie, to Robert Plant. Um, and basically, they had bands earlier in the day perform a set of their own material. Metallica being one of those bands. And then the main event was guest vocalists and guest musicians joined the surviving members of Queen to do Queen songs in tribute to Freddie Mercury. So uh, Stone Cold Crazy was performed 
uh, with uh, Hetfield on vocals, no guitar, which is always weird to see. Yeah. Um, but helping him out with those guitar duties, Mr. Tony Iommi. Hmm. And, like, a pretty great performance. Um, you can definitely see how all three bands and their sounds kind of converge in that one song, you know? Yeah. Um, today, people would have called it, like, quasi-speed metal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it was the perfect song for... Uh, it was the perfect Queen song for Metallica to cover. Um, and there's a really cool moment in A Year and a Half in Life of Metallica Volume 2 which covers the tour portion, where they go behind the scenes at the Freddie Mercury tribute show, and they have a, a clip of Heffield going to rehearsal, and he is, like, freaking out, super nervous, because he's performing with Queen, and he's looking to his sides, and he has Tony Iommi playing guitar on one side, and Brian May playing guitar on the other, and he's just like, I'm in rhythm guitar heaven right now he's just like completely nerding out it's a really cool fun moment and it's a really cool fun performance and it, it's just a really neat uh snapshot i think of uh how big rock music was at the time how big queen was how big freddie mercury was how big metallica was how big guns and roses was just it was just all these massive stars under one roof and it's really cool have you yeah, seen the show in its entirety? Uh, I have not seen the show in its entirety. I have it. I really have it. So one of these days I'm going to catch up. Yeah. Yeah, just really interesting to see, like, Metallica probably solidified the most of the newer bands on that lineup. Uh, just because it's, you know, literally a year after the Black Album and their opening. Yeah. So, and, yeah. And they're still sort of like the the odd person out you know like guns and roses were the other quote like wild childs of the show but this was also you know 92 people had heard the use your illusion album so people knew like the elton john influence and the queen influence a lot more and and they also had heard songs like uh you know patience and things like that it, it was not as um left field i feel like as metallica who were these like by far the heaviest band on that bill. Yeah, and the crowd are loving them, so what can you say? Really. They and also the, the 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 start of uh uh what sort of solidified um behind the scenes stuff for the Metallica Guns N' Roses tour, which is a whole other episode in and of itself that we'll get to someday. <laughs> <laughs> So 1992 comes and goes, the Black Album Cycle comes and goes, and now we have the late 90s, it's the era of OzFest, Ozzy Osbourne, Flying High, Black Sabbath have reunited, and in 1999, Metallica released, I'm sorry, 1998, 1998, Metallica releases their covers album, Garage Inc., featuring their first recorded Black Sabbath cover, Sabra Cadabra, um, which features, it's not built as such on the record, 
But for those in the know, features a snippet of uh, another track from the Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath album, National Acrobat. Yeah, which is a great, all-around great choices. Um, instead of doing the kind of funky piano breakdown, they go into, yeah, another song altogether, a deeper cut, and it just works. Yeah, and it's... It, I remember hearing uh, their cover of Sabbath and I was like, of all the Black Sabbath songs to cover, this seems to be the mo- one of the more left field choices. Not like they went and covered like changes, like a piano ballad or something like that, but they did something very much in their style. But like lyrically and subject matter wise, you know, I feel so good, I feel so fine, loving that lady. Oh, it, it's like. You know, it's it's weird hearing, uh, it's a little weird hearing Ozzy sing, uh, you know, making love all night and day. It's very weird hearing Hatfield sing making love all night and day. <laughs> I was going to say that, but I think it kind of it makes sense as uh, for them to pick that Sabbath song to cover in that era of Load and Reload, where they're doing blues and they're kind of swinging a bit more. Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if ever they were going, if they were ever going to do it, you know that's the time. Totally, and the I, I re-listened to the cover yesterday in preparation for recording this episode, and the transition from Sabbath to National Acrobat and back is just flawless, and yeah. it made me wish that they did a full ten-minute uh, Black Sabbath medley like they did for. Uh, Rainbow and uh, or what they did for you know Ronnie James Dio and uh, and yeah. for Merciful Fate and like I want them to do a Sabbath one because and just have them do some favorites some deep cuts and just put it in a blender give me like a twelve minute medley call yeah. it a day because they are just I there's I in terms of metal music I don't think there's a better band that covers than Metallica. They just take everything and make it their own. And, I mean, how many people probably think Turn the Page is just a Metallica song? And that was a massive, massive hit and still is a massive, massive hit for Bob Seger. So, yeah, I mean, head stuff especially. Yeah. Anything, yeah. So, I, that, I just, the, like you said, they, if you're familiar with the original Sapkadabra, it goes into like kind of a funky breakdown of like which I can definitely picture Hatfield breaking down but instead they go into uh, National Acrobat which is from my estimation a song about reincarnation and then right back into making love all night and day Um, so definitely a, a, a fun a fun little cover also funny because like both bands um, are so iconic, but it's like they can't be replicated. You know, Metallica play Sabbath really well, but it's very much with their feel. Um, yes, uh, and it's like all eight people involved are so distinct that even with that influence, like they're not replicating each other. Especially like Lars to Bill Ward is probably the biggest difference because Lars is quite a straight-ahead drummer. He can't swing, yeah. but like Ward has the jazz kind of freakouts, so... Very cool. Yeah, it's, yeah. A di- it's a different kind of swing. Yeah. It's more of like a... 
an ACDC swing than it is like a Max Roach swing, which is more of what Bill Ward has or something, you know? He's definitely more of a jazz cat that became a metal drummer because he happened to be in the first metal band. (laughs) That really no one sounds like him, even to this day. No. Which I think is the biggest, not to get too off, but I think is the biggest downfall of uh, 13, the last Sabbath record, is, and not to knock um, name escapes with Brad Wilk, right? Um, yeah, Rage from Rage Against the Machine, who filled in on the tour and on the record, but it's not Bill Ward. Yeah. Um, actually, I think he didn't play on the tour, because I saw Sabbath twice. Um, on oh, the you know what? They brought in the Heaven and Hell drummer, I believe, right? No, no, no. Not, not Vinny, either. It was, um, let me look it up, because he was really good. Because I feel like they brought in Vinny... Was that for the last run of shows here that Bill Ward was not a part of? Like, the absolute end shows? Vinny did Heaven and Hell, right? Um, Tommy Clefatos did um, Live Gavin and the Masses and the End Tour, which was, um, I think, 2013 and, like, 16, I think. No, 2013 and 17. And um, he he's like a session drummer, but to me, he played that music like the best it's ever been played, aside from Bill Ward. He just had like yeah. a feel and also that swing. Uh, I just remember it made a big impression on me because I was at the show that was filmed for one of the Blu-rays and the DVDs, so... Oh, yeah, yeah. That's cool. That's a cool moment to be at. Um, I'm going to make you jealous right now. Um, so you were at the filming of that Blu-ray. Yeah. I was at a um, free oyster fest in the town of Milford, Connecticut, here in the United States. And every year, they have a musical guest. In one year, I saw Brett Michaels <laughs> do a free concert, and he said he was recording it for a live album. So there. So there. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm not sure if it actually was recorded for a live album. I hope that it was so I can track it down and listen to it. Not because I want to listen to it, but just yeah. for shits and giggles. Um, I have to say, though, I will give Brett Michaels credit. Um, of all the nationally known acts I've seen live, his set was by far the worst. Wow. <laughs> It was uh, the Milford Oyster Fest, and it was um, he's. It, it was just him with his like solo band. It basically was a. It sounded like a bar band, except Brett Michaels was the singer. Yeah, wow. And even when they played Poison songs, it sounded a little bit like a bar band playing Poison songs. Um, it sounded a little bit like Brett Michaels doing like karaoke to his own songs. And then they only played like, uh, you know, the handful of poison songs that people know. And then the rest of the songs were like classic rock covers. Like I think they did like sweet home Alabama, like really stereotypical, like bar band, summertime, 
outdoor concert music. It was really hilarious and bad and awesome all at the same time. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm long story short, you're jealous. Well, sounds like they should have gotten your cousin to sing for them, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would never forget that. <laughs> you will appreciate hearing that. Um, so, also, around 1998, we have former suicidal tendencies, infectious grooves, bassist Robert Trujillo join Ozzy Osbourne on tour as yeah. bassist. So we have... Uh, if memory serves me correctly, uh, during this time we have, of course, Zach Wilde on guitar, Mike Borden on drums uh, from Faith No More, and uh, Robert Trujillo on bass. That is quite the lineup. And I I saw that lineup multiple times um, at OzFest, at uh, a couple other random Aussie shows, and... I wish I appreciated that lineup more than as I do now, if that makes yeah. sense. I get that. Because um, not only did that feel like an actual band, like it was a very modern lineup for the late 90s. You know, kind of took Ozzy yeah. and into the current era. At the time. And yeah. um, I remember having the Live at Budokan DVD, which I think is 2001 or two. And like that I, one I also have that, yeah. That's yeah. that lineup. Yeah. Notable for um well they all sounded great, but also notable for Ozzy having the teleprompter. <laughs> <on stage. laughs> yeah. He's Ozzy. And I believe that's the same lineup that appears on the Down to Earth record. I'm not sure about Mike Borden on drums. I'm assuming he plays drums on that release. I know Zach Wilde's on guitar. And I know that Robert Trujillo is on bass because this is the only uh, new I gotta be careful how I word this this is the only yeah. album of new Ozzy Osbourne music that he uh, lends his bass talents to yeah Mike Borden does. Yes. he does play drums right yeah. so it, the weird thing about Ozzy is that he would not always have his touring band play on the record he would rely a lot on, uh, not throughout the 80s and uh, early 90s, but once he got kind of into this period, it'd be a lot more like producers, studio musicians, outside songwriters or producer credits. And um, like, for example, on the new record, Ordinary Man, Zach Wilde's back in his touring band, but he does not appear on the new record at all. Yeah, that's funny. Ozzy kind of, I feel like for a long time he was in the pop world, but just happened to be making metal albums. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a way, he's kind of the first to do that. The first that I can think of. He sort of like, um, well, it sort of goes back to that 80s mentality of bands like uh, Aerosmith and Bon Jovi, who would work with like a Desmond Child or something like that, you know, and had sort of all these hit songs that was sort of like the first instances where rock bands were kind of collaborating with outside songwriters and 
uh, were being more produced, I will say, um, and the producers were playing a heavier role in how the record sounded and how the song sounded and came to be. And similarly, I reckon there's probably a pretty big part of Ozzy's fan base that was like always more into him for the solo stuff than Sabbath, you know, than the Sabbath. Yeah, it, it, that's the funny thing too is that I know people personally who love Ozzy mm. and are sort of whatever about Sabbath. Like they can take it or leave it. They they might be kind of like a casual fan, kind of like the you know. The hits, maybe a couple other songs, but like they love solo Ozzy, and, and it's funny because it's it is quite different than what he did in Black Sabbath. Yeah. It's still same genre, same vocalist, but very different directions musically. Because I think the more melodic Ozzy stuff is probably closer to his own tastes than pure yes. Sabbath. Because you know Ozzy talks a lot about the Beatles, and you know just being a huge influence on him. Um, and what was I going to say? Yeah, I think even in the Broken Record podcast, he talks about how Sabbath were like very much their own band. And like he, again, was the front man, but he wasn't the dominant force of that band. Yeah. And I think it was a different dynamic too, tying in with that because, you know, he was one of a four person band. Yeah. In Sabbath. Whereas when he recruited like Randy Rhodes and Zach Wilde, they were there to support him. Yes. He was the star. He was the main attraction, you know? And it so it all of a sudden centered around him and sort of his direction. Um, and, and like you said, you made the perfect point. I think it's definitely more in line with a lot of his own musical tastes and he's a massive Beatles fan and I mean think of all those great Aussie ballads they're not great Sabbath ballads you know they're great Aussie ballads and a lot of them are mirrored after like a Lennon McCartney song absolutely um, it's funny because you know Aussie again is the face of Ozfest but I've never known him to be super like into modern metal like he's had a few collaborations yeah. there I think like with wasn't he on like a Cold Chamber song covering Peter Gabriel? Yeah, I was gonna say I think there was a Cold Chamber track he was a part of. Um, but yeah, you're you're right. It's I feel like it's just sort of what he fell into more than what he um, is into, and I think that's part of the reason why some of the last couple Aussie records fell flat for me too. Besides just the overall quality, is I feel like there was this forced idea that they had to be like heavy in a sense and yeah i expect aussie records to have a certain level of rock to it but i don't expect them to be like down tuned guitars and uh be overly crunchy and heavy and um like i'm not going to an ozzy osbourne record to re or i'm not going to an ozzy osbourne concert to release my rage <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah it's funny because i feel like of the four members ozzy is probably like the least engaged with metal music because you have you know i yeah. solo record pretty heavy he has that 2000 one with all the guests vocalists like geezer's had side projects that are like alternative metal right 
Yeah, I think Bill Ward might be the most out of the out of the uh, circle, maybe. Bill Bill doesn't really play super heavy music, but he's given like a lot of credit to death metal drummers for inspiring him later in life. So. That's true. That is true. I yeah, I guess that is true. What you mentioned, like they've had more discussion and interviews and stuff about heavy music yeah. and the state of heavy music than Ozzy. That that is an interesting perspective. So on the Down to Earth record, released two thousand one, we have Wild Borden Trujillo. Uh, Trujillo even contributes to some of the songwriting. Uh, three tracks that I never had junkie and can you hear them um i have to say this is the last ozzy osbourne record i actually went to the store and bought um i i liked some of the songs on this record it was a little bit of a mixed bag for me the three songs that trujillo contributed to it, I, in terms of songwriting i could not tell you how they go <laughs> I have not heard this record I would like to catch up with it, it it's interesting because he had uh, you know with No More Tears I feel like he sort of reached like kind of a creative peak in his solo career his first creative peak since the Randy Rhodes era in my personal opinion and then he came out with uh, you know a few years later he had Osmosis which is sort of a really mellow, very ballady, not really at all, with a couple exceptions, heavy Aussie record. And then this one is a, definitely more of a rock record than Osmosis, but it's sort of like a bridge between what he always had done and kind of the next couple records in terms of lyrical themes and production and songwriting quality it's a very mixed bag but it sort of bridges those two parts of his career in my opinion so this was a weird time too because uh in 2002 ozzy reissues he does uh would you call it a reissue or a remaster i guess reissue since the, it has new parts added to it uh, of his first two records blizzard of oz and dire of a madman two masterpieces to this day my two favorite aussie solo records um that i mean to release those two albums back to back is pretty astonishing when you think about it in terms of how influential they were especially with randy rose guitar playing and just the master level of songwriting on those two records um but he decides that he's going to reissue them and Richard, explain what happened with some of the parts here, because it, it gets, a, I guess, a little bit convoluted in terms of uh, the players involved. So there's a bit of dispute in terms of who actually wanted to do this, right? Um, Sharon uh, said it was up to Ozzy. Ozzy said it was Sharon's decision. But ultimately what happened was um, the original bassist and drummer, which I think were Bob Daisley and Lee Chris Lake on those records, um, they had sued the Aussie camp for unpaid performance royalties um, on those two albums, which means um, you know, they would have been getting songwriting uh, royalties, but not royalties for like the actual parts on the album, not the parts that they were playing, the sound recording. And right. so someone in the Aussie camp decided 
you know, screw it. We want to reissue these records anyway. Um, let's just get Rob Trujillo and Mike Borden to play over them instead. Um, and so, yeah, that's what happened. Um, those two records were reissued, I think, 2002 to a lot of controversy. I don't think anyone took it very well. Um, no, I, I, all I remember from it was reading about the controversy, yeah. reading about that the albums came out, but I'm pretty sure nobody cared. And if I recall too, it was not long after, um, I know when I was in middle school and really diving like head first into Sabbath and Ozzy, all the Aussie solo records I was buying were part of a remastered uh, collection. I because I, I can remember the album cover was the album cover shrunk down with like different color borders around the original album cover. So yeah. that was how I first bought a lot of these records on CD. And so the point being that in the nineties, at some point he remastered his whole catalog and re-released it on CD. So now just a handful of years later, he's reissuing them again and with original parts removed, which as a musician, as a music fan, I hate. I hate. Yeah, it's a, it, it was a pure crash grab. At the time. There's like yeah. no other in it, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's funny because... I will say that I think Sharon Osbourne often doesn't get enough respect from metal fans because I think, you know, per- personally and as a businesswoman, like, she's done some really good things for Ozzy, but, like, this was not one of them because, yeah. you know, how she had a part in this, so... Yeah, and they were, like, disowned. These albums were, like, pretty disowned not long after. Um, when they were next reissued, they had the original parts again. And it's an interesting stint that Robert Trujillo has with Ozzy because it's touring, Ozfest, headlining tours, this, that. He does Down to Earth. He does these remasters. And then 2003 rolls around and Robert Trujillo says, I'm in Ozzy. It gets no bigger than this. This is the (laughs) peak. This is the mountain. Oh shit, Metallica's looking for a bassist? <laughs> and, uh. Looking for a bassist. <laughs> so, 2003, Robert Trujillo leaves Ozzy's band, joins Metallica. So now, it, it's really funny how, you know, almost 20 years before, Metallica's opening up for Ozzy, and now they're not stealing, but, uh,. Looting <laughs> his bass player with his blessing and his permission. It was not like a dastardly deed. But what makes this period really interesting, and what I think a lot of people forget, is that in 2003, Jason Newstead joined Ozzy's band. So strange. So I, I, I cannot think of another like similar example of this happening in metal, hard rock, um, uh, um, band sharing in flame, members. In Flames and Dark Tranquility swapped vocalists in, like, 95. That's, uh... Okay. So there you go. Yeah. And I didn't know that, actually. I forgot about that. Yeah. But definitely not on the same level as oh, 
Aussie and Metallica. And so I found this article from Rolling Stone uh, that has some quotes about uh, uh, from the various members involved. It's not a fair exchange, said Ozzy Osbourne, referring to former Metallica bassist Jason Neustis joining his band to replace Robert Trujillo, who quit last month to join Metallica. It's robbery, I say. So this is this is the funny thing is that it's not just like the same year. It's literally happening like a month apart. <laughs> Says it's not a fair exchange that Ozzy Osbourne referring to former Metallica bassist Jason Newstead joining his band to replace Rob Trujillo, who quit last month to join Metallica. It's robbery, I say. He is a great bass player, has a good attitude in my band, and I have no hard feelings with Robert Trujillo. Explained Osbourne who officially welcomed Newstead to his band with a private four-song rehearsal for some 25 writers and photographers Monday afternoon at 3rd Encore Studios in North Hollywood, California. Newstead, who left Metallica after 14 years in January 2001, will actually be doing double duty on OzFest 2003 as his other band Voivod has just been added to the second stage. Voivod, who hailed from Canada, will also play Osborne's upcoming Canadian tour. This is something I'm doing first out of respect, so it took zero seconds to decide, said Newstead, who first jammed with Osborne's band last Sunday and says he's played his fingerprints off already. As for the physical part, I'll push myself to make this happen. It's a huge blessing. If Monday's rehearsal is any indication, metal fans won't even miss the departure Hilo, whose last show was Friday at the Hard Rock Hotel in Las Vegas. Newstead slipped into the Osborne bass position seamlessly as the band powered through Black Sabbath's War Pigs and three Osborne hits, Believer, No More Tears, and the classic Crazy Train. And it looks like, this is where it gets a little sad, and it looks like Newstead's new alliance with the Prince of Darkness won't stop at this summer's tour dates. When asked if they'd be writing new material together, Osborne was quick to reply, Absolutely, I can't wait. This TV thing has stopped me of my rock and roll. The TV thing, of course, being the Osborne's reality show. Oh, uh, yes. And Ozzy did at one point compare Jason Newstead to playing with Geezer Butler. So, I mean, it just that last statement saddens me because it promises new material, a new collaboration, but this was not to be. It was uh, another short-lived thing. Um, you know, I think Jason Newstead got in over his head. I think part of the reason he left Metallica was not just uh, to, according to his own words, was not just because of the side project drama and Hetfield not wanting him to release new uh, uh, new music outside of Metallica, but part of it was the damage he had done to his body, touring and headbanging, and he was banged up, and it, he even says in this quote, I'm going to push myself through I think he pushed himself through Ozfest and then was like, I cannot do this anymore. Not at this level, not every single night. Maybe he could yeah. these days if he's, you know, with all these years of healing and whatever else he's had to do, who knows? But during this time he's he's a month removed. Or not a month removed, he's a he's a just a one or two years removed from leaving the band. But it's definitely interesting the just sort of how oh you're out, tag, I'm in, and let's do this. I definitely <laughs> wish... Um, I definitely wish this was an Ozfest I went to. 
did not though this year in 2003. Alas. But yeah, it must have been quite uh, strange to watch from afar at the time because, um, you know, all that stuff had been brewing in both Metallica and Ozzy's camp for a while, I guess. Yeah. To the outside, it's just like, oh, they're swap bassists. Right. That, um, as you see in some kind of monster, when uh, Rob joined Metallica, they paid him a $1 million, like, upfront just like one-time fee um, yeah. as you know, a sign of him committing to the band and vice versa. Whereas you imagine in Ozzy's camp, he must have just been like, you know, a, more than a session player, but not, you know, a creative force or anything. And, you know, not no. that like job security in the same way. No. You know, probably get paid like per date or per session or something. So quite, quite different in that sense. Like a very good business decision for him. Right. And I wonder, too, how much, like, he would have gotten paid per date at that time. Because I imagine he's definitely, I would imagine he's getting paid enough where it's worth it for him. Um, Not that he necessarily needs the money, because he can live off blackout royalties for the rest of his life. But um, it, it must have been worth it to the level that, like, he's, leaving his house to go out on tour again. And, but I imagine though, the, I, my assumption is the pay he received was probably pretty humbling after what he had earned, uh, for dates with Metallica. Yeah. Like I imagine yeah. there was probably a drastic drop. Yeah. Not to mention like boy boys. Yeah. Which yeah. honestly, until I read that article, I was like, Oh, yeah, he spent years in Voivod, which was another random thing because they were just sort of this band that had always been around that he just sort of helped resurrect for like a short period of time. (laughs) And then that kind of fell apart, too, for one reason or another, or he took a step back from or whatever the situation was. I think this will have to be a whole other article is a whole other episode is uh. Jason Newstead's life after Metallica. <laughs> yeah, pretty overall, pretty low key. But yeah, but some interesting projects have come out of it, nonetheless. Yeah. So, all that goes down in 2003, and then about three years later, Black Sabbath are finally, finally inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And who better to induct them than their old friends, James Hetfield, and our favorite Danish drummer, Lars Ulrich. Did you think I was going to say, ooh, Dave Mustaine? Ow! Well, now you have. And, hey, I am uh, David Ellefson. Uh, I'm not sure what he talks like, but I'm pretty sure... It probably sounds like this. Sort of a robotic white man. <laughs> I'm just a full-blooded white American male. Hello, my name is David Ellison. <laughs> uh, shut up, Junior! Why are you calling me Junior? I'm five years older than you. <laughs> and we're both in our 50s. <laughs> 
He will always be Junior to us. He will always be Junior to us. He will always be Junior Dad to me, though. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. What would it come out? What what if? Sorry to interrupt you, but what if it came out that Junior Dad off Lulu was actually a song about David Ellison? I feel like that would be your wildest dreams. (laughs) I would literally, I would literally stop travel in time. I would literally stop making this podcast and start a whole new podcast just devoted to that. Yeah. Every episode, I would just dwell on the fact that Junior Dad is a song about David Elves. Yeah. Maybe one day we will. I feel I'm determined to make this happen. Yeah. <laughs> and now that Lou Reed is no longer with us, he cannot confirm nor deny so we are one step closer to making this a reality. <laughs> yes. Tweet us so he you can't confirm to... or deny my story. So that's uh. one. So he can't say that I'm wrong. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> Anyways. So they yeah. get abducted by James and Lars. Um in kind of an interesting choice, they decide not to perform at the award ceremony. Um, I feel like uh, there was some, uh, at least from Ozzy, he kind of uh, rejected the concept of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, it kind of was like, eh, thanks, but no thanks. Um, he did appear at the ceremony to accept the award and the recognition, um, but. They did not perform. This was sort of in between their uh, re- their two kind of reunion cycles. Um, so I'm not sure if there was personal things going on or if it was just a lack of time for rehearsals or if it was Ozzy not being interested in the Rock Hall in general or a combination of all those things. But Metallica performed uh, on their behalf. Yeah. Um, uh, and the same, yes, you know, Sex Pistols were inducted, but none of them showed up. I think Johnny Rotten sent them a letter saying, uh, we reject the institution, we piss on it, or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which, really, yeah. though, if you're going to induct the Sex Pistols, that's what you want to have happen. Highest honor, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, now, in, in the ultimate form of irony, that letter needs to be on display in the Hall of Fame Museum. Yeah. Funny because that year um, I was trying to look it up and there were only two performers because um, Blondie was the other one. Um, but the other inductees, yeah, were Blondie, Miles Davis, Lennon Skinner, um, and Sex Pistols. And one of them performed. And yeah. Was, you know, so strange. But, you know, getting a Metallica performance, not too shabby. No. And, no. Uh, you know, they played two songs. They played... Uh, Iron Man, and uh, a personal favorite of Lars, as we discussed earlier, off the Sabotage album, Hole in the Sky. Yeah, again, sounding very much like Metallica, but paying to yeah. be very And uh, so it, it's interesting that, you know, 
Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath, they've been around since the 1960s. Metallica have been around since the early 80s. But they crossed paths more than ever in the 2000s. It Absolutely. took all these years, but now the, there's all these things happening. Different concerts, different this, different that, where their paths are crossing. So we go from 2003, they switch members. 2006, South gets inducted by Lars and James. Metallica performs. And now in 2008... Ozzy Osbourne resurrects Ozfest. And in Ozfest, obviously, for years, was a touring festival. Then things started to change in the touring industry and with the Ozfest brand. And they had a weird year where it was a free touring festival. Um, I went that year. It was a weird lineup of, like... Uh, Ozzy, Lamb of God, and like Static X were like the main stage. Um, Ozzy, I do not, God bless him, but I do not recall him sounding too hot at the date I went to. Um, to the point where I left early, I think. I was also very drunk. <laughs> um, I, I love Ozzy, but once you've seen him live once... You've seen him live sort of every time. Sort of the same show. I had seen him live a bunch of times. He was sort of not sounding great. And I was hammered. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to go home. <laughs> but um, the reason I bring up 2008 OzFest is because it was brought back in a different form yet again. This time as a one-time only show. It was one day only. Not touring. And... This was the first and only time that Metallica technically played Ozfest, even though it was Ozfest in a different form. Mm. Uh, in Texas at Pizza Hut Park, apparently. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what? Uh, which is there anything more American than Pizza Hut Park in <laughs> Texas? Like, I feel like everybody in Australia and where you are and everywhere outside the United States are like. Those dumb Americans just summed them up perfectly. Pizza Hut Park in Texas. I'm just imagining everyone in attendance wearing those, like, cheese, Swiss cheese hats. <laughs> and going, pew, 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 pew. Firing, like, fake guns in the sky and fireworks. And... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, all this is probably not too far off than what actually happened. Um, but... And an interesting, uh, uh, you know, to show how... So I think this show... It's interesting because I think this shows, again, the immense popularity of both artists. So in 2008, decades after he started his career, Ozzy Osbourne has a, a show named after him, Ozfest. But how popular is Metallica? They headline over Ozzy Osbourne at Ozfest and close the show. Apparently <laughs> that date, it's co-headlining, but... Yeah. That date was, according to Rolling Stone, the day after they finished mixing... No, sorry. It was the same day they finished mixing Death Magnetic in 2008. So just to uh, put that in the timeline. For and I found this... Uh, article from 2008. I found it on blabbermouth.net, but it's uh, taken from the Pulse of Radio. And it says, 
The Pulse of Radio reports, Metallica will appear at the long-running OzFest for the first time in the event's history on Saturday, August 9th, when the group co-headlines the show with Ozzy Osbourne Pizza Park in Dallas. Although this is the only OzFest date scheduled for this year, Metallica's name has come up a lot in recent years as a possible headliner or co-headliner. Drummer Lars Ulrich, of course, because who else would just, who else would talk to uh, a news source, told the Pulse of Radio he's happy that Metallica is finally doing it. I don't think we've ever been invited before, he said. You know, I've gone to a couple of boss fests. I think it's been awesome. I mean, it's such a great institution, and it's done so much for metal in America. Ozzy and Sharon gave us our first big break in America in 1986. I will always respect that. They've been great to us, so it's cool. I'm psyched. Should be good fun. Yeah. 22 years later, coming full circle. Yeah. And uh, I also thought it was interesting. Um, the <laughs> I just thought it was sort of funny. The lineup uh, is Metallica, Ozzy Osbourne, Serge Takian, Jonathan Davis. So you have two <laughs> lead singer solo uh, shows from two 90s metal bands. Um, and then uh, Apocalyptica and others. But it's, it for some reason, the fact... I like Serge Taken. I do not like Korn or Jonathan Davis. I, I can respect what they did. But I just thought it was funny that Serge and Jonathan Davis solo are on that show. <laughs> Like, oh, imagine if, now, just because, imagine if it was Metallica, Ozzy, System of a Down, and Korn, but now it's Metallica, Ozzy, which is all you need, don't get me wrong, but then Surge and Jonathan Davis, (laughs) the drop-off is uh, drastic. (laughs) So, now, 2006, Stabs gets inducted, 2008, they co-headline OzFest. 2009, Metallica themselves get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I was there. Hear about my experience in episode two of Metallica. Cheap plug. But the reason I mention it's because they perform uh, a 25th anniversary concert uh, for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, I believe it was a two-day event uh, that occurred at Madison Square Garden in New York City. And it featured basically Rock Hall recipients performing shorter sets featuring guests that were also Rock Hall recipients. So, for example, you would have uh, Bruce Springsteen perform and he'd bring out guest musicians that were in the Rock Hall. Uh, you had U2 perform. You had all these major artists perform. Among them, Metallica. And they brought out Ray Davies from the Kinks. They brought out Lou Reed, and this, yes, ladies and gentlemen, is what led eventually to their uh, famous collaboration to, uh, to for Lulu, which, by the way, in that whole Twitter thread, nobody ever mentions Lulu as the, the greatest Metallica record ever released. But I'm guessing that's only because it's technically a Lou Reed record that Metallica contributed to. So I'm, I'm just, you know, getting to the fine print here. As, as to guessing why it was not named. Yeah, you've got to get the guy who wrote, like, his thesis on Lulu to drop in there. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I, I, I gotta be honest with you, you I got that thesis from you. Yeah. I have it downloaded. I've glanced at it. I have not had the mental capacity, though, 
to dive into a whole thesis about Lulu yet. Yet. But one day that day will come. And uh, unknowing to this guy, uh, I tracked him down and I found his Facebook. So if I can make my way through the thesis, I'm definitely going to reach out to him about coming on to Metallicast. Because I know what everybody wants is Lulu talk. But I think it will actually be very interesting to hear from to hear Lulu talk from the perspective of somebody who wrote a master's thesis in defense of um, this masterpiece album of Lulu. Absolutely, that day I will have met my match, my like evil <laughs> doppelganger. It'll basically be your Saint Anger episode, yeah. but a million times more controversial. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say a million, maybe a thousand, but yeah. A thousand times, maybe. Yeah, all right. Uh, <laughs> but they, perf- uh, but besides Lou Reed and Ray Davies, Ozzy Osbourne, the Prince of Darkness, the Godfather of Metal come out, and they perform uh, two Sabbath deep cuts, Paranoid and Iron Man. <laughs> wow. Gotta send the fans home happy at a show like that, you know? Uh, but definitely a cool moment. I mean... I, again, this is one of those shows where I was in New York City at the time. Probably a money issue. I did not get tickets. And uh, missed out on that one. But I wish I went. Because that, that just would have been a once-in-a-lifetime experience from beginning to end. Never mind just the Metallica moment. It's um kind of a wonderful and a little bit strange performance they do with Ozzy too because again you rarely see Metallica playing the backup band to anyone Um, so here's Ozzy doing his regular thing Metallica detuned a bit for Ozzy's range and also just seeing James play rhythm guitar only is very odd to me (laughs) I know it's it's just as odd as seeing him not play rhythm guitar at all and just sing yeah. <laughs> it's funny because um, I think SNM two when he sings uh, Unforgiven three with the orchestra, and it's just him on vocals. I think it's the most natural I've seen him on stage just sing. But even then, you could sort of tell where his hands were. Where like he was like, "What do I do with my hands? I'm not playing or holding a guitar." <laughs> yeah. It is an all-time great moment for him there. Yes, without a doubt. But yeah, I agree with your uh, analysis of this show. It is a little um, odd to see. And uh, a little bit off-kilter at times, perhaps. Mm. And and I think, too, like... And again, I love Ozzy, but he's a little bit pitchy at times in recent years. And, uh, you know, he has moments where he's, like, spot-on. And he has moments where it's just a little bit weaker than it used to be vocally. Because of age, health issues. I'm not blaming him at all. It's just reality. The master of reality, if you will. Yeah. He still has that kind of one-of-a-kind presence, you know? Like, even if... Even Ozzy, you know, at his worst, kind of just guttering around the stage and pouring water on himself is, like, weirdly charming. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... Think of it this way, he, you know, the few public shows that he's done 
in the last year, like whether it be at, uh, I think it was at the Billboard Music Awards, he did the thing with Post Malone and stuff. Um, he, uh, because of health issues and whatnot, he basically was just sitting on a throne, and he still has an amazing presence. <laughs> if you can just sit on stage and captivate an audience, you're doing something right. <laughs> I've been thinking about how Ozzy has had, like, quite a lot of vocal imitators and people who are influenced by him, right? Um, yeah. But obviously being Zach Wild, um, I hear a bit in, like, Lane Staley even, but even, like, Chris Jericho lately has been singing. Yeah. But it's like, even if people, someone can kind of nail the weird, like, pitchiness of Ozzy's voice and the tone, like, no one has his presence. No, yeah. And and also, too, uh, an extremely uh, unique voice. Yeah. I mean, when you think about... I think he's a good singer. I don't think he'll ever be named one of the great singers of our time. Um, But if you're looking just at voice originality, nobody... People might mimic or copy but nobody sounds like Ozzy Osbourne other than Jim Brewer when he's doing an Ozzy Osbourne impression but (laughs) but you know what I mean like as soon as you hear that voice you're like this is Ozzy just like when you hear James you're like this is Metallica this is Hetfield you know there's a very signature sound so after those shows Metallica is able to pay tribute to Ozzy Osbourne publicly at least one more time um, at a Music Cares event, which is cool because Metallica was also uh, honorees at a Music Cares event uh, years before. Um, And basically Ozzy Osbourne was receiving, I believe it was the Stevie Ray Vaughan Lifetime Achievement, uh, and Metallica played a four-song acoustic set um, at the show, primarily covers. They did... uh, I just want to celebrate. They did in my life. Um, I'm forgetting that there's something they did, but they ended with a cover of Diary of a Madman. And you want to talk about full circle? Robert Trujillo on stage with Metallica, playing yeah. bass on Diary of a Madman with Metallica as a full-time member of Metallica for Ozzy. Pay benefit to him who's there in person receiving a lifetime achievement award. <laughs> yeah, I mean that. Yeah, Rob's played those songs like with several bands. Yeah, and um, has played those songs with several bands with Ozzy present, even if not yeah. part of the band. You know, it makes you want choice it was to pick that cover. But again, yeah. like I, it's, it's a really great version of a of a classic song, and with a different yeah. feel too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I'm thinking out loud now, too, as we've been talking about this. I may mention before, oh, they're patched across a lot in the 2000s. I wonder if it's because Rob Trujillo. He's that bridge, you know? Not that they weren't friendly before, or I I think part of it is the opportunities are there, right? People, now that they're getting up there in age, there's more milestones, more wars, more anniversaries, more this, more that. There's more opportunities to sort of celebrate each other's careers, right? But I think Robert Trujillo and that connection cannot be overlooked into kind of bridging 
uh, both camps even more. What are we missing here? What Have we left anything out in our chronological breakdown of Metallica and Ozzy and their journey to metal domination? I think the only thing I can think of is Giza joined them to play Sabbath Cadabra at the Fillmore anniversary shows in 2011. Oh, yes. Yes. Which was... Uh, if I, I honestly, people always say if I could travel back in time to see any show and or any you know band on any tour or whatever, I it's tempting for me to travel back in time and see Cliff Burton because he I was one when he died, um, so that's an obvious one. But for a show that I could have realistically that I was alive for, could have could have bought tickets for, could have flown across country for, I would have gone for that entire week of Fillmore. 30th anniversary. Whole week. Different show every night. All these crazy guest musicians. I mean, again, I keep on saying this, but that's another episode in and of itself, but the, though that, I, I think I would, I if I could have a redo, I would redo that. I would, I would take the time off work and just yeah. fucking go. Because it was hard to get tickets, obviously, but if you got a ticket through the fan club, it was pretty cheap. They were they, they were not charging money for it, really. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, something that really only Metallica does. Like, that kind of level of dedication to their back catalog and their history. And yeah. Their and it's like, who else would... What other band would um, that many guest musicians, like, fly out for? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And next year, October 2021, is going to be 40 years. That's scary. So if they do something for their 40th, I might just... I, I'm, I'm going to have to leave my family and just <laughs> figure it out. Figure out the... I'll leave my family, go to the shows, and then just figure out the rest of my life after. I think it's what I'm going to have to do. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Richard S.E. I think we did it again. See what I did ah. there? Ah. Oh. That's Bring something. Back to, I think the greatest song Metallica ever recorded was We Did It Again with Ja Rule. So good that you had to do a podcast on it twice. Twice? I know. Not many people would dream of doing a podcast about that song once. I did it twice on Metallica and on Alpha Metallica <laughs> because I hate myself apparently. Yeah. <laughs> look at look how far we've come. Now we've, you know, we did, uh, we we've done the good, the bad, and the ugly of Metallica's career now together, Richard, on this podcast. We have like what's left, you know. It well, it, it sometimes like in the case of MTV Icon. We had the good, the bad, and ugly all in one episode. Snoop, the corn, and the... I don't know, Kid Rock? Wait, he wasn't there. He might as well have been, though. <laughs> he's about the only... It, no, it's funny. He He's like about the only rock musician from that time period on MTV that was not there. 
And he would have made more sense being there than others who were. <laughs> he was too busy being an American badass, I guess. You know. Well, <laughs> you know. He is an American badass. <laughs> <laughs> Also realized he inducted Leonard Skinner in 2006 into the Rock Hall, so I I don't know what to add to that. It's just the same year as Sabbath. Yeah, interesting. And to think now Leonard Skinner has to live with Kid Rock as part of their legacy forever. <laughs> oh, poor Leonard Skinner. At least Metallica got Flea. Yeah, right. They did. Yeah, Flea inducted them. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Which I thought was cool because he made a lot of sense and also zero sense. Yeah, totally. Which I sort of feel like is perfect for Metallica. (laughs) Like, a metal band that tries to do non-metal things, you know? And Flea's like a metalhead who... Yeah. But you wouldn't know it, (laughs) necessarily, without knowing him and his background, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to say it again. We did it again. Yeah. yeah we did it. Louder! Yeah! We did it! Yeah. <laughs> and there's one more Mustang for the road. <laughs> so, Richard S.E., you have your various writings going on you have also some new music coming out i do yeah i have our second single in l called summer baby out uh actually the same day as the aussie solo album which i was hoping to write something about that but no with the release dates coinciding um that's not gonna happen so this is my aussie fix i get to have it here (laughs) (laughs) but yeah hopefully that and uh, more writing more recording of music more guest appearances on podcasts exciting times for me in 2020 <laughs> so and, and where can the Metallicast Militia find you on find you online I, I, I know that a lot of them follow you already on at least the Twitter machine but um uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at RS, RSH underscore L. I'm, my writing... E-L-L-E, just to be clear. My writing is collected at Richard, that's R-I-C-H-A-O-D dot contently dot com if you want to read some hot takes. And yeah, I've been appearing on another podcast called Punk Goes Pod, which reviews every cover in the Punk Goes series. So that podcast is going for like five years, so I'm on it every so often. It's been fun. We got to talk about Motley Crue and our collective dislike of them. uh, (laughs) I was going to say, I'm so sorry. (laughs) I actually listened to Dr. Feelgood after that, and I was like, oh, I actually kind of like this. They at least had one good album, so thanks, Bob Rock. Well, you know, they're they do one thing, yeah. and there's been moments where they do that one thing really well. Yeah. But there's also been moments where they do that one thing really bad. <laughs> and somehow, no matter whether it's good or bad, they just keep going and going and going. 
and seem to have this level of uh, notoriety that does not go away. No. There's something very funny about it all. Like, it's hard to explain, but the continued existence is like, I don't know. A, a bit spinal Depressing. tappy. <laughs> it, is, it is a bit spinal tappy, yeah. And I and now like they're doing the stadium shows with my with my boy Brett Michaels and Poison and poor Joan Jett thrown on that tour and Def Leppard, you know, and uh, but there's all these things about how supposedly Vince Neil is getting clean and getting healthy. But did you see the like this past week? That somebody had like a cameo video uh, of him, and he was like, uh, looked like very heavy in the face, slurring his words, like completely hammered. So I'm like, I, I feel bad for the guy. I'm not here to knock uh, him, but like, get yourself together, man. You in like a few months, people are paying a lot of money to see you at a major stadium show. Someone paid four hundred dollars apparently for that cameo of like twenty five seconds. <laughs> so, oh my god. Yeah. Um, I will say this. Cameo is uh, is a treat. And uh, I will say that uh, Greg, who is my uh, close friend and co-host of the Course Pain Podcast, who joins me for our year-end extravaganza where uh, we had the crossover nobody asked for between Metallic Ass and Course Paint. Um, uh, shortly after we recorded that, I did get him... Uh, a David Ellison cameo. <laughs> uh, I believe was, we haven't heard that show yet. Um, I will. I will add the audio onto this episode for you all to hear. Yeah, I, I think. I think that's the least I can do. I'll tag it on at the. I'll tag it on at the end, so you have to listen to the very end. In fact, I'm going to put it on the even after the fans not experts robot that ends each episode so you are literally gonna have to listen to the very end to hear david ellison and his cameo um and i don't want to spoil too much but um for those for the handful of you who have checked out the course Pain podcast or for the many more of you who may have might have uh played along with the david ellison drinking game in the metallica meets mayhem episode of metallicast well and Cammy, you kind of can write out some notes for them to say. And let's just say the drinking game makes an appearance for a very confused David Ellison. <laughs> oh. Well, so Cameron, uh, firstly, I want to say happy birthday for yesterday. I should have mentioned that. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Um, secondly, I'm just one day removed from the great cliff burden i like to throw that out there several so years but one day <laughs> so um i wanted to ask you what is next for metallicast and the corpse paint podcast in 2020 well for metallicast um my plan is uh, i definitely want to have more of the same uh I have a, I've had a lot of great guests like you that I wanted to have return to the show to continue Metallica talk, but I also want to try bringing new faces and new people that have not been on the show before. I want to try and come up with some uh, uh, creative topics that maybe not all Metallica podcasts have tackled. So of course, there's going to be some that 
we all talk about them and put our two cents on. But I feel like, like Metallica Meets Mayhem was uh, a unique one. Um, I did a Metallica mini with uh, where I reviewed the Rockabye Baby Metallica. I feel like that was a unique one. It, so I'm trying to kind of pick and choose a little bit more quirkiness uh, for certain subjects here and there. Um, and I want to continue to grow the show and uh, uh, could grow in subscriptions, grow in downloads. Um, and... You know, I have a, uh, a, a few things in mind to, that I don't want to go into, but, you know, I think in year two of Intellicast, we've made a lot of changes, um, and in year three, you can expect a few more, but nothing that will take away from uh, this podcast professional putting out the same mediocre podcast that you all know and love. <laughs> Well, it's your master of puppets here, so, you know, hopefully you step it up a bit, man. <laughs> well, one thing I do want to uh, uh, work on is get a really, really... Uh, uh, I want to overdo uh, the production values for Tommy Trink, because uh, he's not been pleased with them for years now. Uh, uh, but to, to help me do that, ladies and gentlemen... What you can do is, uh, so once in a while you might hear an ad on this podcast, um, and any money I get from any ad goes right back into the podcast. Trust me, it's not a lot. I don't know if you know this, there's not a lot of money in podcasts. I mean, there's even less money in Metallica podcasts. <laughs> but um, if, if you, I, I think what I want to do is, uh, to add to it, is maybe come up with some kind of initiative for... Uh, what would you, the Metallicast Militia, I want to get you more involved, and I also am willing to perhaps do something extra for some donations so we can upgrade the uh, our equipment and promote the show more, and um, uh, you know, you can give donations through Anchor, uh, obviously it's not something I, like need or want to ask for but if you have a buck or two you want to distribute it fine but i also understand why people don't want to just give money to something that's free and get nothing in return so i've not done patreon i don't know if there's any interest there i don't know uh what i can offer realistically in terms of time and whatnot but i'm open to ideas if you are uh if you if there's people out there who think they'd be interested because like i said any couple bucks that make care of there is going to go right back into the podcast uh, to upgrade equipment, increase uh, production values and into the promotion of the show. So I think that's going to be my big focus um, for year three. By year five, I'm going to have Bob Rock producing this. So, Wow. Yeah. <laughs> going to have to do multiple takes of every line. It's going to be like I'm going to have to spend, like, six months just on the intro. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What? It'll be beautiful. Yeah. I hope so. That's my goal. Uh, as far as Course Pain Podcast, my goal is to do more. <laughs> um, I, I submitted an album for your consideration. The yes, extreme you did. You are 
1989 uh, Dutch album, The Spooky Gloom, by Sempit and All Death Row. Which is a bit Sabbath-like, actually, so, you know, that's so my... So if you're interested, uh, check it out. And I definitely want to check it out. i got to track it down, though. I could not uh, find it on streaming send you a streaming service. It, yeah, it's streaming on YouTube, but you can't purchase it legally or stream it anywhere, so... Okay, send me a link to it on uh, YouTube if you have one handy. And I will definitely check it out. And I will, because it was mentioned, I will uh, tweet it out at the very least to the masses, maybe even put in the episode description if I remember. And soon, you two will all be grunting along with the spooky gloom. The spooky gloom. (laughs) Uh, All right, so... If, like I mentioned, if you want to make a donation through Anchor, there is a link in the episode description. If you do not, I get it. I still love you all. You're still part of the Metallicast Militia. The most important thing is that you download, subscribe, and help me spread the word. Um, I'm, I always call myself the little Metallica podcast that could. Um, I'm flattered and humbled, truly, by uh, the amount of you that actually do listen and seem to give a shit. It's pretty cool. Um, and not something I ever expected when I started this thing, to be quite honest. I figured if I could get 20 people listening, I'd be like, all right, I'll do another one. <laughs> and yeah. there's a lot more than 20 people listening right now, which is very, very cool. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, very excited to start year three with you all. Uh, if you are new to the show and you're not already following me on social media, Please find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at MetallicastPod. Um, and just, like I said, spread the word. Join the fun. Of course, there is Flick Chat that is part of the fun. Uh, a small, knit group of Metallicast Militia members. Uh, download it. Flick Chat. It's a free app. You can use the code Metallicast. Join the group. The group is growing. Slowly but surely, it is growing. Um, yeah. Every... Every week I feel like there's like a new member or every other week a couple of new members here or there. Um, and there's always a random interesting conversation that comes up. For example, recently uh, we had a conversation about the lack of trans-inclusive lyrics uh, in the Metallica catalog. So <laughs> when I say interesting, I mean interesting. And I always, uh, I usually will ask for uh, input from about whatever subject I'm getting ready to record, and yada, 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 yada. So, long story short, I'm just rambling at this point. Flick chat, social media, at MetallicaSpod, and Richard, I'm doing something a little bit different at the end of this episode. Oh, yes, what are you doing? So, I always play a cover of a Metallica song. Yeah. To end these uh, full-lengthers, as I like to call them. Um... But I decided instead to pay tribute to Ozzy Osbourne. And I'm going to play the Diary of a Madman cover by Metallica to end the show. Uh, So again, this is from the 2014 Music Cares event. This is Diary of a Madman. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, metal up your ass. Yeah! And stay tuned to the very end for the David Ellison cameo. Drink! Now we're ready!
another day Hopeless situation Endless price I have to pay Sanity now is beyond me There's no choice <laughs>
Thank you, Ozzy. We love you. We appreciate you. Thank you for all the help you've given us throughout the years. We love you. Fans, not experts. Hey, Greg and Hannah. This is David Olson here. And uh, this little cameo shout-out was booked by Brandon and Emily. And uh, just wanted to wish you a major congrats on your engagement and also on your new home. So that's big stuff. That's awesome, especially for the holiday season. That's great. What a great time to celebrate. And uh, just they asked me to say, Ellison, drink. Uh, I don't know what that means. Maybe drink coffee. I don't know. Or maybe you have an Ellison drink. So uh, either way, um, stay metal forever and uh, enjoy the uh, holiday season. And uh, congrats again on all the great stuff going on in your life. See ya. Bye.